At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, eight-time author and national president of Gamma Xi Phi, professional fraternity for artists, Rashid Darden. Hey, what you drink? Okay, I just, I, you know, I'm not going to let up. I'm not going to let up. I know you're, you are still reeling from the last conversation that I had and that I shared with you guys. But this is another heavy hitter that uh, and meeting for the first time. Uh, you know, he's listened to a couple of episodes. He comes under very good, very good endorsement. So we're we going to roll with this. And, you know, as I was saying to him before, any guy, any man who claims Charles Mingus as one of his favorite jazz musician is a friend of mine. And if you don't know about Charles Mingus, then you need to find out. And I'm sure after this conversation, you will be dying to find out. So Rashid Darden, welcome to the show, man. Come on in the room. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Looking forward to everything we're going to talk about today. Absolutely, man. It's hard to go wrong with whiskey, jazz, and leadership. But hey, man, we're going we're gonna to keep going. We're going to keep right. going. I got a bunch of questions for you. But my audience, they, my audience, they don't turn on their ears until I ask this one question. So I've got a question that, that causes everyone to sit up and get ready. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause on the count of three, give, give my listeners time to ask this question with me. So one, two, three, what you drinking? Uh, listen, I, you know, it, it's whiskey, jazz, and leadership. And I must say two out of three ain't bad. So I am drinking on a cocktail of my own creation from a glass shaped like a skull. The base is Ciroc peach. I threw some grapefruit juice in there, a splash of blue curacao, and um, there's a bada bing cherry in there. And basically, uh, I never matured beyond uh, senior year in college because I just can't put the vodka down. Oh my gosh! Well, sounds like sounds like if you've been working on that since your senior year in college, you almost have it perfected by now, right? I 
listen, it, the cocktail recipe really is vodka plus whatever else is in the fridge. So I'd say it's perfected at this point. So we, we used to call that an icebox drink. Yeah, it's a little trash can punch, a little, you know, I'm an alpha. You know, I, I can't divulge the uh, um, the alpha punch recipe, but, um, you know, let, let's say it's more of an art than a science. We've allowed a few alphas to to sneak in here, so <laughs> you, you're you're in good you're in good company. Since you're gonna go with the the vodka and hit that pretty hard, uh, I gotta hold true to the name of the show. I'm gonna hit the whiskey with some pretty good, pretty legitimate stuff. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna go with Booker's. This was actually one of the first bourbons or whiskeys that I hit in a very serious way. Mm -hmm. And the way I got into Booker's when I was in corporate America managing some geographical responsibilities, I was working in Kentucky and had a really, really good day with the folks I was working with. We, we did some really good things with some customers out there in Kentucky. And on the way back, I felt like celebrating. And so Kentucky is known for their bourbon. Of course. So I of walk course. into the liquor store mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm looking around because at this point, I really don't know what I'm looking for. I just know right. that I just know that Jack Daniels is not going to is not going to represent the magnitude of the celebration I was right, looking to have. Right. And I, I looked on the shelf and there was this bottle inside a box with a glass front on, on uh, in front of it. And the price was a little bit more than what I normally spent at the time. Right. But it wasn't crazy. Right. And so that's when Booker's and I became good friends and got to this point where I would only drink it when my father-in-law came to town. Okay. And so we used to say that it was time to have a conversation with Dr. Booker. So <laughs> that's the relationship that I have with Booker's. So I'm going to bring out Dr. Booker. So, and, so it takes you back to a, a pretty good time and place. So it's got that sentimental value. It's got the, the familial tie. I believe that any good bourbon or any good drink for that matter has to have a story. That's my story. Even if the story's a lie, it has to be a story. <laughs> so that's what we're going to crack open. Let me see. That. Okay, we got... Sit here and bring back some memories. Right. right. And uh, while I sip, uh, sip on these memories, I would love for you to share a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do, and how you became the president of this national fraternity of artists. Because the, the third part of my calling is to make a nod to the jazz artists out there. Right. So if they don't know you, they need to know you. So tell a little bit about your history, your background, and how we get up to uh, having this conversation that we're having today. Sure. Well, I am a storyteller by trade. And um, one of the most important parts of being a storyteller is editing. So although I'm not going to leave out the good parts, I'm going to try not to put all the exposition in there. <laughs> But my name is Rashid Darden, and I'm a native of Washington, D.C., and I currently live in Conway, North Carolina, which is a very, very small town in rural northeastern North Carolina. And I came here. It is my ancestral home, if you will. I'm, I was born in D.C., but generations of my family go back in this area to the 1700s. 
and my white ancestors go back to the 1600s in this area. So I am a novelist. I am a teacher. I am a photographer sometimes. And I am a joiner. Um, I mentioned before we went on that I'm also a member of Alpha Phi Alpha. I'm a Freemason. I'm in a, uh, a service fraternity called Alpha Phi Omega. And by the time I heard of Gamma Xi Phi, I was all pledged out. I don't want to join nothing else. I don't, I'm not proving myself to ne'er another person. But when I, I discovered this organization, and they had just been founded, just been founded in October of 2010, and in er, it must have been late October, early November, I was on a message board, and I saw these kids announcing who they were, and you know we're, we're a fraternity for artists. And on this message board, which was for members of fraternities and sororities, they were kind of tearing the kids apart what does this need to be a fraternity for? Why does everything got to have Greek letters? What's this about? And there was a handful of us who saw this exchange taking place. And I said to myself, well, I'm an artist. This is something I might have joined as an undergraduate. You know, and, and I like the fraternal culture. And I think that's what separates Gamma Xi Phi from a lot of folks um, who are artists. Not every artist really is in that communal space. So I reached out to them and I was working in the nonprofit sector at the time. And I said, hey, I'm looking to transition my career to go more into executive leadership of nonprofits. How about this? I do a pro bono contract with you for a year. I help you get organized. I help you get the right start as an organization. And Boom. That's it. I, I, I just need a good pro bono client for my portfolio. Because I was very serious about being a nonprofit executive director at the time. And of course, you know, me being a good 10, 15 years older than the people in this organization, I was like, listen, think it over. Talk to your campus advisors because uh, they were in New Jersey and I was in D.C. And they really, you know, some of them were skeptical, but the, the, the wisdom prevailed. And they said, hey, this guy is offering us a service for free and we can fire him at any time. Well, I guided them through the first couple months and I put it out there to my, my network. Hey, y'all trying to join this? I think I might want to join this. Like, I think I want to go from consultant to member. And a year after their founding, the beta chapter of Gamma Xi Phi was established in D.C., and I really credit those people who took a chance and joined, many of them who were already in Black Greek organizations. They wanted a different experience. They wanted a more intimate experience. And they wanted to do programming that made sense to them professionally and personally. So very soon after that, we were having art supply drives for, for young people and for cognitively disabled people. Gamma Xi Phi had its first convention in 2013. It's always been a small organization, but, um, but it's been an intimate and a fun organization. I went from consultant to alpha chapter to national executive director, served for four years, and was elected national president at the end of those four years, served for two, took a break, came back, and I'm in my second term of service. I tell people often people will ask me or kind of question, well, which do you love more? Do you love Alpha or do you love Gamma Xi Phi? And, and I, I'm straight up with them. I love Alpha, but I like Gamma Xi Phi. And liking the organization you're in most of the time is so important. 
That's very similar to uh, a lot of business relationships, a lot of corporate job relationships. I mean, it would be great if I liked my job most of the time. <laughs> right. You know, so one of my first guests and actually one of my my closest colleagues, he's my he's my weekly accountability partner. And if you listen to, I believe it's the third episode, but my first guest is Dr. Peter A. James, and he's a member of Alpha Phi Alpha. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, besides that point, I decided to hang with him pretty tough, <laughs> Be being a good Kappa man as myself. Uh -huh. uh, but one of the things I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, and this is a little bit off topic, but you know, I, I tried to explain to some of my friends who are not Greek, some of my friends who were not around the the Black Greek experience, right. how there's a little difference between the Black Greek experience versus the white Greek experience, possibly some of the other cultures as well. But I know the the white Greek experience tends to be a bigger thing while you are in school. Mm -hmm. That's when they come on full steam. And the Black Greek uh, experience tends to be pretty strong while you're in school. But I think the real significance I've experienced anyway has really come after you've graduated. That's right. when right. the organizations really kick in, whether it's any of the, the major black fraternities, uh, Omega Psi Phi, Alpha Phi Alpha, or the greatest one of all, Kappa Alpha Psi, <laughs> or, the, or the sororities. There right. tends to be a very, very strong brotherhood or sisterhood after uh, you graduate and get into the professional world. Is that similar to what you are experiencing, creating, nurturing as the as the national president of this fraternity as well? Well, yeah, there are certainly some similarities there, right? But I, I think it's really important for your listeners to understand two things about the differences between predominantly white Greek letter organizations and predominantly black ones. The first biggest difference is they were founded for different reasons. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, well, Black organizations are founded about service. Not necessarily. Like when you really look at, you know, your history and my history, they weren't out here feeding the hungry necessarily. And, and that's okay. Because when we say something is a social fraternity, we don't necessarily mean it's just social times. And, you know, and everybody knows the story of the, you know, the original Kappa house parties and how they were important. But what people don't understand is, it is revolutionary for Black people to gather in Indiana for social purposes over three consecutive days. When there was great peril in the travel to those locations, there the, the Klan was in full effect. I'm sorry to be speaking on Kappa history, but it is the same where you go when we think about AKAs calling themselves, you know, the pretty girls and, and you, people in 2021 thinking that that's vain. It's revolutionary for Black women to call themselves pretty and to own it because the white Eurocentric paradigm that we live in does not celebrate the beauty of Black women. So why not the AKAs? Why not the Kappas? Why not the Alphas? So they're, they're different. They were founded for different reasons. They were founded so that Black people can have safe spaces for things that we now know as self-care and for things we now know as, know as organizing, right? So even though Kappa might not be in the forefront of what we consider to be social justice, 
Kappas are because they were in these spaces where they had like-minded people helping them to, in your case, achievement, you know, and other organizations have other keywords and buzzwords. And that's just not something Pi Kappa Alpha did. It's not something Tri Delta did. They had other purposes, defining and refining what a gentleman is supposed to be or a lady. And if I can be, keep it really hundred with you, when you think about white friends you may have had in college and who their friends ended up being once they graduated, they were their roommates and they were people that they met in their fraternities and maybe people they met in extracurricular activities. Black people, the friends that we leave college with were black people that we knew from being black and being in black social spaces. I don't know where my roommates are. Distilling that into what we're doing in Gamma Xi-Fi, we know that there are plenty of organizations out there that do artistic service, that do networking within genres, and there is a predominantly white fraternal organization that does the same thing too, Phi Beta. I have a lot of respect for Phi Beta. They were the first. They started as a sorority. They became co-ed. They do their thing. Fine. But when we think about Black people creating safe spaces to talk about mental health among artists, think about how many Black artists we've lost to suicide. Phi Beta is not talking about that. And they don't have to talk about that. And that's okay. That's where Gamma Xi-Fi comes in. There will always be people who don't find the need. They don't find their needs served in a fraternal space. I view fraternalism as a vehicle for radical self-care by using fraternity ritual as a way of reminding you of your own core values in a secular way that doesn't disrespect the values of a Christian or Muslim or Jewish or atheist kind of person. When we go through our ceremonies and our practices and remember why we were founded and what our mission is, for me, that's a radical form of healing. Mm. You know, we remember why we're creating. We remember why, you know, I'm writing books or she's doing photography or makeup artistry. And I'm not going to get that from Phi Beta. That's literally not what Phi Beta is for. Right. I love it. I I love the fact that I've had this conversation with a a couple of guests before, and I'd love to get your your take on this, because this this is a slightly different area than when it was raised before. But uh, I think it was Leffert Fate when I was uh, saying that uh, we we very seldom have an opportunity to create our own narrative, that our experience has been to make the best of the narrative that's been placed upon us, but spending a lot of time either trying to overcome the narrative, change the narrative, but even in changing the narrative, our pivot is based on what someone else has constructed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in these fraternal organizations, that's an opportunity for us to at least take a shot right. <laughs> at creating right. our own narrative right. uh, you know, around something that will last more than just my existence. Right. What's your take on that? That's just kind of my layman's view of that. What's your take? Well, I think that, you know, being in a newer organization that's only almost 11 years old, there's certainly an element where our founders wanted to create something that would be bigger than them, that would be looked at with some level of seriousness. And in their, in their structure, in their framework, fraternalism was the most serious thing on their campus. And there, there's a lot 
to be said about leaving a legacy of that magnitude. I'll also say there's a lot to be said when you stay engaged and use fraternalism as a means of practicing democracy, uh, use it as a means of service, using it as a, as a tool to continually better yourself. So when I think about any folks using fraternalism as a way to have a legacy, I hope that at least in the divine nine context, people look at that more than, well, I want to be a dean of my chapter. I want to be a dean of pledges or I want to be a chapter president. Have you left your chapter better than you found it? Have you left, will your line brothers or line sisters miss you when you're gone? You know, and what do you do to work at brotherhood or sisterhood every day? Because it's a job. And I don't know if anybody ever told you that, you know, that there's a saying, now the hard work begins. People think that that's about service. People think that's about, you know, running the yard. It is as hard making brotherhood work as it is making a marriage work. It's hard work. It ain't for no hoes. It ain't for no punks. You've got to really, really want to build that and the people with you have to want that too. Now I'm, I'm, I'm getting on a podcast. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not close to my line brothers and alpha. I love them. And we've been through some things, but, and, and I came in through a grad chapter an alumni chapter. So of course, anybody listening that came in undergrad, they're saying, Oh, that's what the problem is right there. But listen, I know lines of 137 that are close. And I know lines of two that don't talk to each other. The, the common denominator is the work that you put in to make the relationship work. And that's the same in Gamma Xi Phi. Like, you know, small, young, and the people that are around and engaged get a whole lot more from it than the people that aren't engaged. I'm thinking about the similarities between the work that you must be doing and the work that an entrepreneur would have to do mm. with getting a business up and running. N not that it's easier to step into a corporate situation because trust me, I've had some pretty challenging corporate situations right. Right. in my life, but it's different when you're the entrepreneur, it's your idea. You go, yep. you have to go from idea to structure, to implementation, to execution. Uh, and you've got to make that happen. If you don't drive that, it's not going to happen. And I, I would assume, I mean, you guys, you got a decade under your belt, so you're, you're, you're not new, but you're still pretty new. I, I would yeah. think that there still is a good degree of entrepreneurial spirit and effort that has to be in place in order to make this a real thing. There is. And I think that, you know, and I'm not a founder of this organization. I'm just somebody that found the idea and it gelled with me. I think that the most important part of the entrepreneurial spirit that I try to embody is being okay with failing mm. and being okay if the original plan doesn't pan out the way you want it to. So I'm a self-published novelist. That is my art. That is my craft. I enjoy literature and storytelling. Doing it myself taught me a lot. That probably makes me okay with failure. But the thing is with my books, it's just me and my books and the people that want to read them. And you know, when, when you're an artist, there's always going to be people that are like, oh, I just love anything you write. And it's like, do you? And some people really will. So it, it, you don't necessarily get that feedback. But when you're leading a fraternal organization that nobody's heard of before, 
after you get past the people that don't think that artists need a fraternal organization, I, I don't know if you've ever taken the uh, the Clifton Strengths uh, assessment, but my assessment, my uh, strength is competition. And with competition comes comparison. So I'm always looking at other professional organizations. I'm looking at Mu Beta Phi, the military fraternity. I'm looking at Iota Phi Lambda, the business sorority. And, you know, I want to be where they are. Some are younger than us, some are older. And I'm constantly comparing. And what I try to do is shield my members from that comparison and realizing, you know, everybody's not a competitor. Everybody's not, you know, really looking for at what the Joneses are doing. But a lot of it is just learning as I go and being okay with the pivot. So expansion has been a big thing under my administration. We have had periods where we didn't expand a whole lot and we focused on ourselves. And there's periods where we're looking more outwards. And we've had some locations that ended up not being successful. And instead of internalizing it, I had an open meeting with my members and whoever wanted to come. And I said, you you know, guys, like, even though it's not my fault, I feel like I failed you all that this didn't work out. And using those tools that I've learned about restoration and restorative practices and just open and honest communication and not being the kind of leader that has to have the answers. Hmm. Wait, 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 hold up. Don't move past that spot. You got to say that again, because there are a lot of people listening that don't understand what you just said, because that was foreign. That was another language. So say that one more time. Leaders don't have to have all the answers. And in fact, this, you know, as we were preparing for this, there was a question about leadership books and whatnot. And I am a reader, but I don't read leadership books. But I'll tell you what I did read. I read Good to Great by Jim Collins. And if you don't read anything else from Good to Great, the lucky thing is I I read this book at the same time as the first season of Love and Hip Hop Atlanta. So Stevie J was always talking about get on my bus get on my bus. So I have this visual of putting the right people on the bus. And that's what informed my leadership in Gamma Xi-Fi was, you know what? I kind of have an idea where we're going, but let's put the right people there. Well, let's figure it out. Like, we'll drive it out there, toot, toot, get on in. And what happened when we had this conflict or this, this, what I perceived as a failure, because the right people were on the bus, they helped the organization pivot. They helped me brush off my feelings of failure. And they said, you know what? You know, we'll do the next thing. We we ain't worried about it, chief. Like, we got you. I am an emotional person, but I tend to be like, you know, the tough guy as a leader. That meeting broke me. Like, I was like, this is what I've been building, a community that has my back. And I was so grateful. And I told them how grateful I was. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.